The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. It's a podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. In today's show, we will focus on the Christian roots of anti-Semitism and what history and archaeology can tell us about the original Jesus movement. I'm your host, David. During my research in Jewish studies, I conducted two interviews, one with Amy G. Levine, who was recently named University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Vanderbilt University. Some of her most recent books include The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, and The Historical Jesus in Context. The other interview is with Israel Kenol. Kenol is the Jehezkel Kaufman Chair of Biblical Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is best known for his theory that ancient Jewish folklore contained a myth about a Messiah who rose from the dead in the days before Jesus of Nazareth. Those theories are expounded in his books, The Messiah Before Jesus, The Suffering Servant of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Messiahs and Resurrection in the Gabriel Revelation. In 2008, Kenol was noted for his research on the Gabriel Tablet, an ancient document which he believes supported the claims of his books. In Dr. Amy J. Levine's lecture regarding the book The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, she shared that the New Testament text is anti-Jewish only if the people reading it have a predisposition against the Jewish people. Dr. Levine described how if the New Testament sounds antagonistic towards Judaism, it's because it was written as a polemic against the Jewish authorities of that time as competing groups struggled for power. She believes that although it has been interpreted in an anti-Jewish manner, there are other alternatives. Dr. Levine, please tell us about your research regarding anti-Judaism in the New Testament. Is the Christian church responsible for anti-Semitism? The vast majority of Christians do not read the New Testament as anti-Jewish. Indeed, when we have passages that could sound certainly anti-Jewish, you Jews are children of the devil, or the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus, what many Christians will do is say, those are concerns expressed to people in the congregation. So just as Jesus warns his fellow Jews about their misbehaving, so people in congregations today are being told about their own sin. The problem is the language of Jew is still being used, and for some listeners, it is as if the church is confessing the sins of the Jews, those people out there, rather than confessing their own sins. I don't think it's helpful in the long run to say the text is or is not anti-Jewish. What we do need to talk about is the fact that the text has been interpreted in an anti-Jewish manner. That's clear. And then we try to figure out where those bad interpretations came from and try to figure out ways of proclaiming the text in a way that does not have an anti-Jewish aftertaste. In the next excerpt, Dr. Levine explains the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism. Linguistically speaking, both terms mean the same, since an anti-Semite is someone who hates Jews, and a case can be made that this type of prejudice can appear in not only an ethnic or racial form, but also in a religious one. The idea of only accepting Jews as equals if they deny Judaism is the greatest form of religious bigotry. When it comes to the New Testament, is the term anti-Jewish more accurate than anti-Semitism? 
I take anti-Semitism to mean a racial concern or an ethnic concern, so that an anti-Semite won't care whether the Jew converts to Christianity or gets baptized or accepts Jesus, anything. The anti-Semite simply dislikes a person because that person happens to have Jewish descent. Anti-Judaism is a complaint about the Jewish religion. It's a way of saying that the Jewish religion is, as say, um, some people have said today, a gutter religion or a bad religion or a religion that's antiquated, outdated, and no longer helpful. That's anti-Jewish. One can look at the New Testament as being anti-Jewish. I don't think the New Testament is anti-Semitic. Even when we get to the church fathers, and we have church fathers saying that one cannot be a Jew and a Christian at the same time, as soon as that Jew converts over to Christianity, stops going to the synagogue, stops keeping kosher, no longer proclaims the importance of circumcision, no longer says anything that's distinctly Jewish must be maintained, the church father's quite happy. And this idea of not so much hating Jews because they're Jews, but just being concerned about the Jewish religion, continues up basically into the Middle Ages where we start getting issues of so-called anti-Semitism, racial or ethnic concerns. Comes about, for example, at the time of the Spanish Inquisition, when the church would talk about people, these Jewish converts called new Christians, and they would distrust new Christians or suggest that new Christians ought not to rise in the Catholic Church hierarchy. At that point, these people are looked at as somehow, even though they're Christian, even though they're baptized, somehow that trace of Judaism still remains. Although anti-Judaism predates Christianity, there are examples in the Roman Empire of Jews being accepted in some locations and discriminated in others. The way to make peace with the empire was through assimilation, including the partaking of Roman cult and accepting the worship of Caesar. Is anti-Semitism more ancient than Christianity, having its foundation in the policies of the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire is problematic here because it persecuted Jews in some locations at some times and not in others. A really good example of a Jewish success story, if we could call it that, is Philo of, Alexander's, Philo of Alexandria's nephew. His name is Tiberius Julius Alexander. He's clearly from a Jewish family in Egypt, and he rises to be governor of Egypt and eventually becomes governor of Palestine. He has the same job that Pontius Pilate had. And here his being Jewish was not held against him. So as long as Jews, even in the Roman Empire, subscribed fully to Roman cultural values or perhaps began to worship Roman gods or give up their distinct Jewish practices, Rome for the most part had no problem with them. So assimilation counts here. And Rome is much more interested in people assimilating, following Roman politics, worshipping the emperor, participating in the state cult, than they are in the particular ethnic background of their members. Dr. Levine refutes the notion that the early non-Jewish followers of Jesus were part of the God-fearers mentioned in the New Testament or Gentile members of synagogues, but were directly connected to the Jesus movement through the teachings of Paul, far away from established Jewish religious institutions of that time. Who were the followers of Jesus, and what was their background? We do have evidence of God-fearers in synagogues, of Gentiles who would join Jewish gatherings, whether in separate worship or in Jewish community centers, and would worship the God of Israel. Some of them took on for themselves Jewish practices, such as dietary regulations, but they did not make full conversion. They did not announce themselves to be Jews. The men did not submit to circumcision. 
when the church comes along, the church suggests to these God-fearers who are already worshipping the God of Israel, who are already appreciating Jewish ethics and Jewish history, you can be full members of this group without having to submit to circumcision, without having to follow Jewish dietary regulations. In other words, you remain Gentiles, but you're Gentiles who worship the God of Israel. I think some God-fearers would have found themselves quite welcome in those circumstances. But I do think that the majority of, of early Gentiles who came into the church did not come in via the synagogue. I think they came in through separate preaching. We don't have strong evidence that the people in Thessalonica or in Corinth or in Philippi, to whom Paul is writing his letters, came out of a God-fearer background, came out of any affiliation with the synagogue. They may well have encountered Paul and other early Christian ministers in the marketplace, uh, in the Roman baths, on the street corners, as they would have encountered ISIS worshippers and Mithra worshippers. So I don't think it's the case that the majority of those early Gentiles came in through the synagogue. I think they came in through the street and through the public gathering places. She discussed the character of James, the brother of Jesus. She sees James as an ancient compromiser who is ignored by Protestants but revered by Catholics. Can you tell us more about James, the brother of Jesus, and his role in the early church? Josephus provides us information on James, Jesus' brother. We have information from the book of Acts, and we have mentions of James also in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We know James is running the Jerusalem church. His reputation is in church history as well as in Jewish history from Josephus, a practicing Jew who is involved with the temple, who follows Jewish law, who promotes a Jewish social and religious identity along with Christianity. We also have in the New Testament the epistle of James, which is not very Christological, it doesn't say that much about Jesus per se, but is very much concerned with ethics and ethics that look very much like Jewish ethics. James is an incredibly important figure. I think he was an ancient compromiser who was doing his best to bring Gentiles and Jews together in this early church environment. I think today one of the reasons James is underplayed or less known is because Martin Luther did not like the epistle of James. He suggested it was an epistle of straw. Maybe it should be tossed out of the canon. And because we are today, particularly in the United States and in parts of Western Europe, such a heavily Protestant culture, we read through Luther rather than the older Roman Catholic tradition where James is important. And we look more to Paul than we do to James. Her view of the Gnostic Gospels is similar to the perspective held by Elaine Pagels, who considers these texts important documents share little historical information on the Jesus movement. Why do the Gnostic Gospels omit any information regarding Jesus and his followers observing any Jewish practices as compared to the New Testament? The Gnostic Gospels, or what we would call the Gnostic Gospels, are not terribly interested in the life of Jesus in terms of what he did. They're much more interested in what he has to say to his followers following his resurrection, following um, his public ministry. They tend to be secret sayings shared just with the inner group. And they tend to be more sayings than they are deeds. And finally, they're in-house sayings, Jesus talking to his followers, rather than Jesus talking to a more general and indeed generally Jewish audience. Audience. So the Gnostic Gospels, quote-unquote, are less interested in Jesus' Jewish background, and they're much more interested in what their particular view of Jesus has to say to their particular view of the church. I don't look at this so much as being anti-Jewish. The idea rather here is that Judaism, Jewish people, are basically off the radar. They're not important to the needs of these particular texts. And absence does not necessarily indicate an anti-Jewish, let alone an anti-Semitic view. To her, the Gnostic Gospels were omitted from the New Testament or considered non-canonical 
not because the church fathers wanted to suppress their ideas, but because they lacked popularity among various Christian communities. Why are the Gnostic Gospels omitted from the canon of Christian scripture? From a theological perspective, canons, whether the canon of the Tanakh, the, uh, the Christian Old Testament, or the canon of the New Testament, theologically we say they're divinely inspired and God set it up. Historically, sociologically, the canon is uh, comprised of documents which had certain popularity, certain um, cachet in the early Jewish and early Christian communities. So we can ask, was stuff deliberately left out? Were the, were the materials edited? To be sure, to put a canon together requires picking and choosing what goes in and what goes out. Whose version to use, particularly when we don't have printing presses, when we have scribes, we, we don't have good control over the, the specific words that are being used. But I don't think, for the most part, things like the Gnostic Gospels were deliberately omitted from the canon any more than I think there was a, a huge debate about whether to include books like Judith or First and Second Maccabees into the canon of the Tanakh. Questions of date, questions of popularity, questions of language all come to the fore. So what we finally have in our various canons are the consensus documents. And consensus not so much top-down. It's not as if Constantine said, these are the books that are going to go in and we're not going to have any others. By the time the church canon reaches the age of Constantine in the 4th century, most of the books in the New Testament canon were already more or less considered canonical, inspired, or important by the church. Dr. Levine noted that new religions are usually in disagreement with their spiritual predecessors. She shares her vision of a unified community in which Christians and Jews can share their values and common foundation, something traditional Jews and Christians would disagree with since there are fundamental differences with their approaches towards scripture and the role of humans in God's plan. Can we have a Christianity that does not deny the value of Judaism? When new religions are founded, they typically take antagonistic view toward the parent body, so that we can see in Israel's own scriptures an antagonistic view of Canaanite religion or Babylonian religion or Egyptian religion. And so when the New Testament, as the church gradually distinguishes itself from the synagogue, we begin to see antagonistic comments. The same thing will come up with Islam, that will look at Judaism and Christianity as predecessors, but Islam insists that it is the true fulfillment, has the true text. And we can move on to the, you know, the Bible highs taking a look at Islam, or the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints taking a look at more normative Christianity. Um, one can be, in these cases, relatively benevolent, or one can be fairly antagonistic. That depends upon the individual. But all religious self-definition in that sense tends to say, we have the truth in a way that our predecessors did not, or in a way that our neighbors did not. So the question then becomes, is anti-Judaism or even anti-Semitism the left hand of Christianity? Can one have a Christianity that does, that does not deny Israel its right to exist, that does not deny Judaism its own truth claims? And the answer is indeed we can have that type of Christianity. We do have that type of Christianity because we've got numerous Christians as well as certain Christian groups today that will say Israel is still under covenant with God, that Israel's messianic vision is not in vain, that Israel's reading of its own scripture is correct. And right now I'm actually citing a Vatican document, the Pontifical Biblical Commission statement on the role of the Jewish people in the Jewish Bible in the Catholic Church. We don't have to be hateful. And even if our texts have been interpreted in a hateful manner, there's no reason to presume that we have to continue that hate. To keep us only stuck with our texts, only with the biblical texts, suggests at least in Judaism and Christianity that we've put what Christians would call the Holy Spirit or Jews would call ongoing revelation out of business. Religions evolve, and religions 
ideally can look back on problems in their past and say, we reject that. We don't do that anymore. We repent of our sins and we simply move forward. So anti-Judaism has been a part of Christianity, just as anti-Christianity has been a part of Judaism. Perhaps the time has finally come where Jews and Christians, church and synagogue, could grant each other a little bit of grace and say we each have something to contribute to the greater glory of God and neither one of us has a complete lock on the truth. The more intriguing aspect of her perspective is that she considers the Judeo-Christian messianic vision to be the same. According to Dr. Levine, Jesus is depicted in the New Testament as restricting his mission to the Jews, not only by reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel, but as part of a grand plan to bring about the Messianic Age. This agenda is based on preparing Jews for the embarking of the Kingdom of Heaven and gathering the Gentiles to stream to Zion. Tell us more about the relationship between Jesus and the rest of the Jewish people of his time. There's a line in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7 that says, Thus he, speaking of Jesus, declared all foods clean, as if to suggest that Jesus did away with the Torah, Jesus did away with the law of Moses. But that's Mark's editorial comment, and I don't think it's the historical Jesus. I think the true Jesus is better found here in the Sermon on the Mount, who says, Don't think that I have come to, to do away with the law and the prophets. To the contrary, I've come to uphold them, I've come to fulfill them. He followed Jewish law, he followed Jewish practice, he followed Jewish theology, and his earliest followers, such as James, did as well. And we know that not only from the book of Acts, but also from the letters of Paul. So I don't see Jesus as coming to undermine Judaism in any way. Indeed, I think he restricted his mission primarily to the Jews. As he says in Matthew to his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I think the reason he picked 12 disciples is because he's thinking of somehow reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel and preparing them for the inbreaking of the Messianic Age. The mission only goes to the Gentiles substantially following the death of Jesus. And then it's, it's a move as if to say the Messianic Age for the Church had already begun, and of course in the Messianic Age the Gentiles should stream to Zion. But I don't think Jesus looked at bringing in the Gentiles as part of his own commission. His job as a Jew was to speak to other Jews and prepare those other Jews for the inbreaking of the Kingdom of Heaven. In one of her books, Dr. Levine views Jesus as part of the continuum of Jewish teachers, rabbis, and prophets because of the commonalities in their worldviews. By describing Jesus as part of historical Judaism, she builds bridges for Jewish-Christian relations. However, this view is held by very few Jewish scholars and even fewer Christian ones. When we study the relationship between archaeology and the Bible, as well as the historical background of Second Temple Judaism, we must consider some of the archaeological finds uncovered around the Dead Sea area. One amazing example, the Gabriel Revelation, which came to the forefront of academic research in July 2008, can provide insights into the development of Jewish mystical writings. The Gabriel Revelation is owned by collector David Gesellson of Zurich and has been legitimized by Ada Yardeni. The tablet is made out of gray limestone and it bears a Hebrew inscription. It measures three feet by one foot and is written in ink, not engraved. The text of the Gabriel Revelation contains a total of 87 lines. The tablet is broken in three pieces and is illegible in some sections. Scholarly opinion is that Hasson Gabriel is authentic and dates from the late 1st century before the Common Era or the early 1st century of the Common Era. Israel Canol is one of the leading scholars connecting the origins of Christianity to Judaism. 
His research regarding the Gabriel Stone brings history and archaeology to the masses in a compelling way. What was taking place at the time that the tablet was written? Uh, in my view, the tablet uh, was written uh, immediately after a great rebellion uh, which took place in the year 4 BCE. This is immediately after the death of Herod, and the rebellion was against uh, the regime of the Rodian family and uh, the Roman army who dominated uh, the land of Israel in this time. So uh, this rebellion was crushed um, brutally by the Roman Empire and uh, I believe this is the background of the writing of this document. In our interview, he shared that he believes this controversial Jewish relic was created by the followers of a messianic leader who, like Jesus, was killed by the Romans. Who created it and what was his purpose? Uh, I believe it was created by a followers of a messianic leader uh, of a group of people who followed him. And he was killed during his war against uh, the Romans. Um, and they uh, reflect to the fact of his, the death of their messianic leader. In relation to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the tablet is different than the Essene text. The Essenes mention up to three messianic figures. However, the tablet focuses only on two, the Messiah son of David and the Messiah son of Ephraim. What is the relation between the tablet and the Dead Sea Scrolls? It is not related very much. I mean, there is a, in the popular media, it is called uh, a Dead Sea um, Scroll on Stone, but it is not connected to this group. The ideology is, is different. Kenol's premise is that the tablet predates the Jesus movement, and Jesus himself w was influenced by this document. The significance of the Gabriel Tablet is that it, it is possibly connected to one of three historical figures that predate the Jesus movement, such as Judah of Galilee, Simon Perea, and Athronges of Emmaus, were revered as messianic figures before the rise of Christianity. Um, how similar or how different is this group from Jesus and his followers? Well, it's predated Jesus and his followers. I believe that Jesus himself was influenced by this um, uh, uh, document. In the Gabriel tablet, we also have the two messiahs mentioned in the Talmud, something that does not appear until later Jewish tradition. Where do you see in the, in the tablet where it mentions the messiah? I know there's a debate about if it actually mentions a messianic figure. Uh, we have uh, the sentence um, uh, where uh, God is uh, sending David. Uh, he's talking to David and he's saying to him, My servant David, go to Ephraim and ask him to put the sign. And uh, so we have here uh, David, who is, you know, the, the messianic figure of David, and also the other figure, which is known from Jewish sources, which is 
Ephraim or the son of Joseph. In later Jewish traditions, we have two messiahs, the son of David and the son of Joseph or Ephraim. So this is the first uh, times that we see these two messiahs functioning together. Both the angel Gabriel and Michael are mentioned. Michael is considered a messianic figure in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, I noticed that it mentions also uh, Michael. Yes, the um, angel. Yes. Does the angel Michael represent a messianic figure, or is it no? Separate? Angels are not messianic figures; they are angels. <laughs> so Michael is there, of course. Gabriel is there. He is speaking in at least in the last part of the document, but they are angels; they are not messianic figures. Okay. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it speaks of Melchizedek and um, two messiahs, one royal and one priestly. Is, is this a similarity in the tablet? Well, this is one of the points of difference because uh, uh, unlike the Dead Sea Scrolls where we have a combination of the priestly messiah and the royal messiah, here we have David and Ephraim. So David is a royal messiah, of course, but Ephraim... It's not a priestly figure. Ephraim, Joseph, these are not priestly figures. So this is one of the differences that we have. It's a different messianic conception, one which is not to be found in scrolls. So at that time, they they expected for these two messiahs to come very soon or later in the future, in the end of Uh, days? Well, in this, uh, uh, we have... uh, similar situation in the schools and here in the sense that both groups uh, both groups expected the Messiah to come very soon. Canole noted that the book of Zerubbabel and the Dead Sea Scrolls is the closest document to the Gabriel tablet. However, there are many allusions to other biblical books on the tablet. Which book in the Bible relates the most to the tablet? I would say Zechariah and Daniel. The two of them. What has created the most controversy is Kenol's assertion that in the Gabriel tablet a figure of a suffering Messiah is mentioned, and that the idea of the Messiah dying and rising on the third day is introduced for the first time. What new developments in our understanding of the first century can be derived from the tablet? It's first century BC, the tablet, not first century. Uh, so we can see that at the end of the first century, uh, that already in this time, this is around the time when Jesus was born, that the figure of a suffering Messiah, probably also the expectations that the Messiah will die and rise on the third day, already existed in Judaism uh, uh, before the messianic activity of Jesus. So he could rely on this uh, expectation when he... Uh, was claiming that the Son of Man is going to die and rise after these three days. Christians believe that the prophet Hosea first mentioned the idea of a resurrected Messiah. However, most Jewish scholars consider this passage to be a metaphor for the entire people of Israel. On the other hand, most secular scholars agree that the very idea of a Messiah suffering, dying, and rising was unknown to Jews in the first century. Where does the passage of rising after three days come in the Bible? Like, where does it appear? Uh, it is uh, appears in the book of Hosea, but there it is a metaphor from for the entire 
people of Israel, um, but it was taken later and applied to the Messiah. What was different about Jesus' message than the rest of the Jewish groups at that time? Well, uh, this very idea of uh, suffering, dying, and the rising Messiah uh, was unique. Uh, I see it here in the gradual revelation, but this is not to say that all Jews of the time knew about this concept. It was formed in a small circle. Uh, it was not known to many people. So uh, when Jesus spoke about these ideas, people did not understand him because the general expectation was to a triumphal Messiah, not to a suffering and dying Messiah. Many people are unaware about the complicated history between Jews and Christians, especially as things are not as clear-cut as they are conveyed in both the New Testament and Christian history. I asked Dr. Canole about the reasons behind the parting of the ways. Was this an inner Jewish debate about the Messiah? Uh, what do you think was the, the biggest thing that brought about a division between the different groups? There was a debate. I mean, different groups had different opinions. Um, I think um, in the big step for separation of Christians the Christian followers of, of, of Jesus from the rest of the Jewish people, um, the first step was um, their belief that uh, the Messiah already came. So, and they stopped to expect uh, the coming of a Messiah to redeem Israel politically. This was, I believe, the first step toward the separation. Do you agree with Professor Hansi that Christianity did not officially separate from Judaism until the 3rd or the 4th centuries when the creeds were written? Uh, that's true, but uh, uh, officially. But I believe uh, uh, there were already steps in this direction taken. The first is the one I've mentioned, and the second was uh, with Paul uh, when he gave up the fulfillment of the commandments. This was a major act toward the separation, but not every Christian accepted it. There were those who did not accept it. So it was a gradual process. It didn't, didn't uh, take place in one year just now uh, during some some time what happened to the group that wrote the tablet uh, we know some documents which were influenced by it like the book of the Obama and others so I believe we are not speaking about just you know one copy of written in stone, I believe it was copied to scrolls and, and was, you know, uh, read by different people. It had an important impact on, on following years, but I don't know uh, what happened to the people themselves, I don't know. Since my focus was finding the root 
causes of anti-Jewish sentiments in the New Testament, I decided to ask about the connection between persecution and apocalyptic thinking in the first century. Do you think that persecution from the Roman Empire or any form of anti-Semitism influenced this group to to consider the coming of the Messiah at their time? It, yeah, I mean, uh, it's not just... Uh, uh, we, we can speak about, yeah, it's... Uh, um, they wanted uh, uh, liberty, they wanted independence, they didn't want uh, the Romans to rule them, they didn't want uh, the Herodian family to rule them because they were perceived as illegal rulers, and they wanted to go back to uh, being an independent, liberated people. Do you believe that um, every Jewish group suffered persecution from the Romans? Um, uh, the, the, would... the people as a whole was, uh, uh, you know, suffering. It, it was uh, uh, like, I mean, it, this was not so much unique only to Jews. I mean, all people which were subjects to, to, Roman, to the Roman Empire suffered in terms of taxes and other things, and uh, so uh, I don't think that the Romans had anything uh, um, unique against Jews in the first stages, but they suffered like like many other nations in this time. After her interview, Kinol recanted the most contentious aspects of his theory, after much criticism by other scholars. In the most recent book on the subject, Hasson Gabriel, New Readings of the Gabriel Revelation, he retracts from his premise and agrees with other scholars that the passage in question, by three days live, should instead be read as the Messiah being asked to show a sign, not resurrect. Other scholars like John G. Collins and Adela Yarbrough Collins, authors quoted extensively in his research, argue against his theory as well. It should not only the Messiah isn't mentioned in the Gabriel Revelation, since the text is difficult to decipher, but propose that it, it is historically impossible for the concept of a Messiah dying and being resurrected to appear in Jewish sources before the Bar Kokhba revolt, which took place between 132 and 135 of the Common Era. I asked him about the dissenting views at the time of our interview. What do you think about the article in Biblical Archaeology Review that says that the text is very broad and it's hard to find your claims in it? Uh, uh, we have, uh, uh, as I said, David and uh, Ephraim, uh, which is, I said, as I said, a very known combination of Messianic figures. And in my view, also the term Prince of Princes is in, in, in this document borrowed from Daniel, in the book of Daniel, it is not uh, a messianic title, but I believe in this document, it is a messianic title. Kenol's assertions about the Gabriel tablet convey a battle between light and darkness common in both the Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Testament, what Gershon Sholem calls catastrophic messianism. The early Christians saw themselves as inheritors of divine calling in this world to spread Jesus' message. While the possible writers of the Gabriel Tablet, the followers of Simon, chose direct combat against the Romans 
leading to their demise. Can all theories compelling, as in the Gabriel Revelation, we find a group of surviving followers of a messianic king trying to make sense of their loss, just like Jesus' disciples? These concepts drove different communities and sects in the Second Temple period to see themselves as the true keepers of the covenant of Sinai and to picture their leaders as the only hope for humanity. When these ideas became popular in the Roman Empire, militant groups decided to claim what they saw as spiritual conflict for themselves. Historically, an anti-Jewish bias from people claiming to follow the teachings of the Jewish preacher of Nazareth have caused much prejudice and persecution. To heal the hearts of those afflicted by this, we must seek to understand the roots of these sentiments to gain insights on how not to perpetuate this conflict. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic.